Well, my name is Sean. Uh, I come from a church, Wooddale Church in Minnesota, and we just finished a season of searching for a senior pastor. We found a guy by the name of Dale Hummel. <laughs> yeah, I'm from that church. Someone on staff said he's going to preach about forgiveness, uh, preach about the kingdom. It is great to be here. It is great to uh, have Dale and Marcia there. Uh, Dale's just doing a fantastic job. He sends his greeting. And know that uh, we are also praying for you. We just finished a season of searching. Uh, we saw God work in powerful ways in the interim. We saw God work in powerful ways um, even as Dale has come. And it's been exciting to see what he's done. And uh, anyway, we just, uh, we'll continue to pray for you and see what God's going to do in the future. And excited for that with you. A few uh, years ago, NPR ran a story about a guy by the name of Julio Diaz. Julio was 31 years old. He was a social worker. He lived in the Bronx of New York. And on the way home one night, he thought, I'm going to do what I do every night. I'm going to stop at the diner and I'm going to go home. I'm going to get something to eat and then go on home. He got out at the subway station and he was approached by a high school kid who pulled a knife and said, give me your wallet. Julio looked at the situation. He thought, this isn't worth the fight. He uh, handed over his wallet. The kid turned around and started to run away. When Julio had this thought, he said, uh, I thought, I've got to say something. So he hollers out to him and he says, you know, it's awfully cold out here. If you're going to be robbing people all night, you want my coat as well. And the kid just stopped and turned around and looked at him. He says, that's all right. You can keep my wallet. You can keep my coat. In fact, do you want to go get something to eat? The kid was so shocked by this kindness that he said, okay, sure. So they walked and they went over to a diner and it's the same diner that Julio always went to and he walked in and he knew the busboys and he knew the waiters and, and he knew the cooks and he was saying hello to everybody and, and it was like this big family and the kid said, do you own this place? Julio said, no, I don't own it, but I just practiced this idea that you'd be kind to everybody. Have you ever heard of that? The kid said, I've heard of it, but I didn't know anybody did it. So they have a conversation over the dinner and as the bill comes, Julio said, I'll pay for it, but I need my wallet. <laughs> so kid gave his wallet back to him, and Julio paid the bill. He said, I'll give you 20 bucks, but I want your knife. He gave him the knife. He said, I want your phone number. I would like to connect with you and continue a relationship. A powerful example that I think, what would I do if I was in that situation? What would you do? If you were approached by a kid with a knife who said, I want to take your wallet, would you respond as Julio did? I think I might be a little bit more about justice. I might be about retribution. I think, you know, wouldn't it be great if I'd respond that way? But I'm not so sure I would. There's a passage in the Bible, Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bible, if you have an electronic device, turn it up, power it up. Let's look at Luke chapter 10. This is a story that I, I think is very familiar to many of you. It's probably one that you've looked at and studied. You've heard about it before. It's one that you'd say, you know, I, I understand that, but... You know, really, it's about danger. It's about a mugging that's already taken place. It's about the victim that's laying there. And it's about whether people are going to come and help and get involved, uh, kind of go out on the limb and, and potential danger for them. And we say, you know, I can't believe they do it. But then we stop. We say, you know, what would I do? Let me look at it. Luke chapter 10, beginning of verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. And then I think he just looked straight at him and he said this, do this, do this and you will live. 
But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, who's my neighbor? Who who is my neighbor? And Jesus, in reply, told him a story. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he went by on the other side. And so to a Levite, when he came and he saw the man, he also went by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled and came to where the man was, when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Jesus turns now and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus again looks him straight in the face and says, go and do likewise. Go and do the same thing. Well, the story is an interesting story. It's about a guy who was walking from Jerusalem down to Jericho and it's a 17-mile trip. It's about 3,000 miles of decline. If you were running it, you'd want to run from Jerusalem to Jericho, not from Jericho up to Jerusalem. But you probably wouldn't run this route anyway because it is dangerous, and it always been so. It is a place where robbers always lurk, and you wouldn't travel alone. You say, why is this guy going down there by himself? In the 1800s, they still would, would not let... Uh, visitors go in this area they said you know what there's there's it's it's not safe the 1930s they actually had to have special permission in order to go down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho they said even in the 1930s there would be people that would come in and would rob you and would get off into the hills and go away so the story set up everybody knows that there's a dangerous spot saying what is this guy doing and then Jesus said but but when he was left there half dead um, there was coming along the road a priest and everyone said, hey, great, a priest is coming. This is a wonderful thing. There's a Levite that was coming. But both of these guys who everyone thought would be the heroes, the holy ones, they're the ones that were supposed to do the right thing, they went by on the other side. And then there was a Samaritan. And you can almost hear the crowd groan. Uh, this is an unlikely and even an offensive hero. To the Jews, you couldn't have picked someone who would offend them more. A, a, a Samaritan in their mind was worthless, one that would never be set up as an example of someone who we ought to act like. But an interesting thing happens from the beginning of the story to the end. You see, the expert of the law says, who's my neighbor? And by the end of it, Jesus twists it around and says, the question isn't who is your neighbor, the question is what does it mean to be a neighbor? See, this expert in the law was trying to draw a line and say, who is is it that I'm obligated to care for? And Jesus said, that's not what it looks like when you love God with all your heart and you love others, the question then becomes, how can I be a neighbor to those in need? There's a guy by the name of Prof. Ra. His name's Soong Chan Ra. He works here at North Park Seminary in Chicagoland. He uh, wrote an article a number of years ago when he was pastoring a church in Boston. He said, I was reaching out to uh, intellectually um, stimulating congregations. He said, I had students from Boston and Tufts and MIT I had had sharp people, they were intellectually bright, they were theologically correct, and as I would preach the message to them, I had to make sure that I had everything right. He said, the big challenge for us was our church was located next to subsidized housing. 
And even if we got everything right, but we didn't care for our neighbor, we weren't getting everything right. He said something that he found coming to the Western church. He said, you know what? The, the Western church and the people in Boston, the people in Chicago, the people in Minneapolis, the people in your neighbor were busy. When we think about being a neighbor, say, you know what? I've, I've got schedules to keep. I've got things to do. I have things on my list. The, the bus driver has to, has to get to his next stop. The, the challenge is, he says, well, we're so busy. He said, the other thing is that we have this technology that, you know, we can walk through a mall or we can walk down the street and we can just check and, and we don't even see what's going on around us. He said, this is what I observe about church in the West. He said, I want to tell you about lazy boy mentality. He said, there's a lazy boy mentality. So we got this great chair here. I have, a, I have a huge lazy boy at home. I don't know how many of you have lazy boys, but a lazy boy is known for its comfortable set. Now, I, I know that you, whether you're at the 95th campus or here at Hobson, that you find maybe it's your seat and you find a spot, right? You're sitting in there, you go, how long is this sermon going to be? And you just kind of, you, you find a spot. And, and the best thing about a lazy boy, the best thing about these seats over 95th, your seats over there, although yours are a little bit wider, I understand. So we have to sit in narrow seats. You guys get wide ones. Um, what you try to do when you sit in a comfortable chair is you find a spot, not that feels great, but a spot where you don't feel anything. Where everything is just holding you up just right. It's pushing on your backside just perfectly so that you can kick back and you can watch TV or whatever you do, read a book, and you don't feel a thing. And Prof. Ross says that's what we do in the West when it comes to those in need. Is we try to insulate ourselves, not so that we just don't feel it acutely, but so that we don't feel anything. The expert in the law says, who's my neighbor? Jesus said, that's the wrong question. Let me tell you a story. The question isn't, who's my neighbor? The question is, how do I act like a neighbor? And he says, I want to challenge you in some things here. First of all, he says, I want you to be a neighbor that is without any sort of prejudice. Jesus told, uh, chose this unlikely hero. He says, I want to set the Samaritan up. And everyone in the crowd is going to just groan. He just, no, no. You know, we, we saw it coming. We, we saw the man who was injured. And Jesus is a master storyteller. He says, you know, this guy's injured. He's laying beside there. And, and everyone says, yeah, he's a fool for being on that road. And, and a, Samaritan, or, 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 a priest comes. And they're like, oh, yeah, here's our guy. Here's a priest. The priest goes by and they think, oh, yeah, I know a couple of priests like that. They just kind of go on by. They're busy guys. And a Levite comes. They say, oh, yeah, here's, here's a Levite. Yeah, he, oh, yeah, he passed by too. Well, he's got responsibilities. If he's passing by, he probably is heading to Jerusalem. He, he um, has responsibilities that he has to fulfill. And if he goes over and helps someone who's injured, uh, that, that guy might die. And if a Levite's touching something or someone that is dead, then he's disqualified from service. So for the sake of God, he can't touch. He can't go there. Jesus said, you know what? The question isn't who the person is. The question is, is there a need? Is there a need? It's not about prejudice. It isn't about skin color. It isn't about the part of the country that they're from. It isn't their last name. It isn't about anything except that we are to treat people who are in need equally and with kindness. It's not about religion, it's not about education, it's not about if they've served time, it's not about if they have a different view towards politics. The question is, is there a need that I can meet? Is there something that I can do without arrogance, without pride, not measuring worth or worthiness of the recipient, but rather can I in some way be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ in this situation? Uh, 
the, the biggest mountain in the world is Mount Everest. It's 29,035 feet. The first two people to ever climb it were in 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. Uh, they climbed it and everyone thought, wow, that's an incredible feat that they did, but they were not the last people that have climbed it. Nepal said, we need to generate a little bit more tourist income, and so they opened it up in the 1990s. And they said that you can come and you can climb Mount Everest if you'll pay the fee, and it's upwards of $60,000. And since then, thousands and thousands of people have climbed Mount Everest. But something interesting has happened in the climbs to Mount Everest and what we would call the morals of the climbers, and that is that if you're in a party and, and someone can't make it, then you leave them behind at the camp. And if you're in a party and you're climbing and someone has been left behind by someone else, you don't worry about them because your party's on the way up. And then there's tragedies that happen in these mountain climbs. One of them was David Sharp, who was an engineer from Cleveland. He had paid his 60,000. He'd climbed all the way to the top and 984 feet from the top in his descent, he ran out of oxygen. And as he lay there beside the trail, slowly dying, 40 climbers walked past him and said, it's not my responsibility. And David Sharp froze to death right there on Mount Everest. One climber, Ed Vitris, who scaled 14 of the world's tallest peaks, said this, passing people who are dying is not uncommon. Unfortunately, there are those who say, it's not my problem. I've spent this money. I'm going to the summit. And Jesus said this, we have an eager desire to get home right after work. We have an eager desire to get the shopping list done in 45 minutes. We have a desire to get our homework done. We have a desire to get our career accomplished. We have a desire to get uh, to the front of the line, all sorts of things. And Jesus said, but do you see the people in need? Without prejudice, without arrogance, check your heart, open your eyes, serve more and judge less. Students, junior hires, high schoolers, Help your parents out here. Parents can get pretty focused. Help them see those people around them. Help them see opportunities to be a neighbor without prejudice. Jesus goes on. He's a, mass, he's a wonderful storyteller. He says, you know, I want to tell you about this story. And he said, first of all, he sets up the Samaritan. Then he says, let's look at the people involved, but let's look in particular at the Samaritan. When you're trying to figure out how to interpret uh, a parable, a couple things that you do. Number one is you say what was said at the very end of it. An, another tool that Jesus would use is what words does he place in the people's mouths that he's telling the story. In the other place is where does Jesus expand? When he talks about the priest, he says, yeah, the priest passed by. He talks about the Levite, the Levite passed by. Jesus talks about the Samaritan. He said, you know, not only did he see, he stopped let me go on and tell, tell you just what he did. He came to that spot. He saw him. He took pity on him. But Jesus doesn't pause there. He says, let me explain what it looks like. He went over to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and he brought him to an inn and then he took care of him. Jesus really expands this out and says, you know what? Being a neighbor not only is without prejudice, but it's to do it generously. It's to see the need, to take pity, he goes over and he begins to work on him, not looking in the hills for more bad guys coming to take him out. He anoints him with oil that, that will help heal. He brings the wine that might uh, cut infection. He, he puts the man on his own donkey. He says, you, you ride, I'll walk. He brings him to an inn and he works on him. William Barclay said this, 
It's kind of a heady quote. I want you to look at it, study it, take it home, memorize it. He said this, it's no new experience to find the orthodox more interested in dogmas than in help. Those who are people of the word, those people who say, hey, the Bible's really important, that we're more interested in making sure that we get everything right than actually helping. And to find that the man the orthodox despises is the one who loves his fellow men. In the end, we will be judged not by the creed we hold, but by the life we live. The teacher of the law said, how do, how do I gain eternal life? Jesus said, how do you read it? Well, you gotta love God. Everything you are, you gotta love God. That's right, and you gotta love your neighbor. Jesus said, do it, and you'll live. He gets down to the end of the story, he says, are you gonna do it? Terry was a follower of Jesus Christ lived in a neighborhood like you and I do, and his next-door neighbor was not a follower of Jesus Christ, but they were good friends. They shared lawn mowing responsibilities when they were on vacation. They talked over the fence. They were in each other's lives. They had barbecues together and that sort of thing. When Terry's neighbor's wife contracted cancer, and then three months later she passed away, Terry said, I've got to do something for this guy. The man went through the day, said, I went through the funeral I was in such despair that night about 10 o'clock. I said, I'm just going to go for a walk. So the man who just lost his wife says, I'm going to go for a walk, and I'm going to walk down by the river. And Terry said, I'm going with him. And as the man walked all night long, Terry followed just a short ways behind him and didn't say a thing. And he walked and he walked and he walked. And as the sun came up the next morning, Terry went over to him and said, how about we go get breakfast? The man said this, he says, I go to church now, my neighbor's church, a religion that can produce the kind of caring and love that my neighbor showed me is something I want to find out more about. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. Jesus calls us to be generous in our friendship, generous in our neighbor, generous to those that are in our sphere of influence, that we love God with all our heart, but we need to love others that we have eyes to see and a heart that's ready to move, that we make enough space in our life, that we don't have to love the whole world, but we ought to love a part of it. We don't have to meet every need, but we need to meet a need. It's intentional. It's saying, I don't have to be heroic, but I need to do something. Jesus, what is it? Maybe it's tutoring kids. Maybe it's being involved in some ministry here, near, and far. Maybe it's finding a place at the Hobson or the 95th campus in some way that says, I want to join what you're doing in local outreach. It may be a missions trip. It may be showing up to help uh, an immigrant uh, in resettlement. It may be finding some way to, in a big way, maybe moving to a new neighborhood. Intentionally saying, I want to do what I can for the cause of Jesus Christ. I want to serve the youth in this church. I want to help out in the children's ministry. It may be youth saying, you know what, I want to plug in in some way. As a high school or junior high student, you can serve and you can be a neighbor to a coworker, to a stranger, to a, a classmate. Uh, how can I be a neighbor and how can I do it generously, God? Well, Jesus goes on, he says, you know what, let's talk one more piece here. And that is that at the end of the story, when we're at the end, the man pays for him. He pulls out his wallet and he says, here's two denarii, I want you to cover expenses now, some would say this is two months. Others would say it's two weeks. It's probably two weeks' expenses. He said, you know, put them on my tab. And when I come back, 
Any other expenses that he has incurred, they're my responsibility. Now, you and I would look at this and say, you know, this guy, the guy who got beat up by robbers, he was going on a road he shouldn't have been on. He was foolishly doing what he shouldn't have been doing. He was traveling alone. It's kind of his own fault. He made poor choices. And besides that, he's half dead. It's not a real great prospect for ministry. But the Samaritans said, you know what? He's my responsibility. I'll take it on. Tony Hall, who is a former U.S. ambassador for humanitarian issues and worked in particular about global food crisis, said this. He said there's over 2,500, 2,500 verses in the Bible about meeting the needs of poor and the hungry and the outcast. 2,500 verses in here. So that's God's plan A is to work through you and through me. His plan B, Tony Hall says, I don't know what it is. It's plan A. This is be a neighbor. Be a neighbor for the cause of Jesus Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The teacher said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, salvation comes through Jesus Christ. It comes by faith. In Titus, it says this. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So we don't get into heaven because of our good deeds. We don't get into heaven because we're great neighbors. We get into heaven because Christ and Christ alone. And the, and the, the teacher of the law heard that and he says, okay, I understand that. I gotta love God. I, I gotta respond in loving other people. And he says, do those things. Jesus takes the theoretical. We're saved by grace in Jesus Christ. We need to respond with love towards God. We need to respond in love towards others. But he says, let's make it practical. Meet needs. Be a neighbor. Reach out generously without prejudice. Do it sacrificially. My wife and I um, have a, a friend of ours who works at the local recreational center, and she checks people in, uh, part-time job. She's a great woman. Her name's Roseanne. Every time that we go in there to check in for a workout, Roseanne is behind there and she punches in our number and, and she's always got a little project she's working on and she's knitting hats. And we said one day, Roseanne, what are you doing with, with the knitting? I mean, you're knitting, you've got to have hundreds of hats. What do you do with all those? She said, I, I make these little tiny hats for infants who are in the neonatal ICU at the local hospital. I said, that's awesome. I talked to her this morning. I said, Roseanne, can I tell your story? She said, yeah, you can. She goes, the, the last batch is going uh, overseas. She said, I, I've made Minnesota Viking hats. I've made Green Bay Packer hats. There's not a lot of demand for black and orange, I guess. But, <laughs> but she said, that's her thing. What's your thing? Check out this video. You and I might spend about 70 to 80 years on this earth. Not long when you consider the timeline of eternity. Have you ever wondered what life is all about? Every day we get bombarded with the message to pursue the things of this world. Make money, get stuff, be comfortable, live well. More, 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 and me, me, me. That's the prevailing message of our day. Our generation has a hijacked version of the American dream. But as Christians, we know deep down this distorted view of life isn't real life. We read what the Bible teaches and we see how Jesus lived. Every day we face a choice, to pursue the me, me, me mindset of the American dream or to pursue Christ. 
What if this generation was willing to trade in the pursuit of the American dream for a world that desperately needs Christ? To be traders. A trader is a new kind of missionary, not defined by geography. Where you live doesn't make you a missionary. The mission you're on makes you a missionary. Being a trader is a movement that requires us to live out our faith, not just talk about it. As a trader, we must choose daily to sacrifice and be intentional with our time, money, and skills. We can be like the Good Samaritan in the parable. When we're on the road of life and see someone in need, we choose to help. We follow Jesus' instructions to go and do likewise. A trader must hate injustice and find specific ways to bring the hope found in Jesus to desperate situations. It's easy to identify what you hate. What makes your heart break and your fists clench? A trader sees work as worship. Everything you do in life, including your job, can be an opportunity to worship the God who created you. Because God is glorified when we use our God-given passions and skills with excellence. And finally, a trader must act swiftly because the time is right now. The result of all this would be a generation of traders who are making choices with their time, money, and passions that are kingdom-focused and not self-focused so that our short time here can have an eternal impact.